The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. Today, Part 9, The Glory of the Gospel. Our text, 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians... And the section for consideration this morning starts at verse 4 and goes through to verse 18. The climax, of course, is that great verse interpreted already by that prayer from the choir. But we all with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are changed into that same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And it's my prayer this morning that ere we leave this place, we may carry something of the image of the shining, the effulgence of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in our faces and in our lives. Well, now, for those of you who are visitors here, we're pursuing a series of studies in this wonderful epistle under the general title of God's Call to Church Action. The section we're dealing with is the Fellowship of Ministration and particularly this morning, the transformation of the ministry, the way the gospel can transform our lives. You remember last week having documented in terms of living letters the genuineness of his ministry in Corinth. Paul now proceeds to discuss the impact of that gospel which made the living letters and constituted them messengers not only throughout Corinth, but wherever they went. He takes that gospel and he says, I want to treat it as a transforming power and influence in my life and those to whom I write. Prior to his conversion, you remember, Paul had exercised a ministry of death. He was a son of the law. He was a legalist. And he exercised a ministry of death in the literal sense, for he hailed men and women to prison and did havoc in the church of Jesus Christ. But once he had encountered our Lord Jesus Christ, he was changed into a minister of life. From then on, out of his innermost being poured those waters of living water, and he became a minister of life. Through that Christian message then, the gospel that he had personally received, certain things happened. He possessed first what we're calling here this morning the strength of confidence in the gospel. He received the strength of confidence in the gospel. Look at verses 4 to 6. And such trust, or better translated confidence, have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the new covenant, the New Testament. There was a time, of course, when Paul could boast in the flesh. He could say, if any other man thinketh he have whereof to boast or have confidence, I the more. And then he outlines why. His education, his culture, his pedigree, and everything that he possessed. But this carnal confidence had been nailed to the cross. There came a moment in Paul's life when he said, everything I am, is going to be replaced for everything that he is. And he took that fleshly, carnal confidence of his to the cross. 
and it was nailed there once and for all. That's why he says, we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus having confidence in the flesh. No, having confidence in the Lord, having no more confidence in the flesh. So his strength of confidence for living in service were now centered in what he calls the Christ of God. Secondly, the call of God. First of all, the Christ of God. Look again at verse 4. In such confidence have we through Christ toward God. Now no one knew better than Paul himself that the miracle that transformed his life and letter the miracle that founded the church at Corinth was accomplished through Christ and Christ alone. He didn't lift a little finger to change his life. He was on a pathway of hot pursuit to ruin the church of Jesus Christ. He was a minister of death. And right out of the blue, literally, God broke through into that man's life. He saw light above the brightness of the meridian sky. And down on his knees, he cried, Lord, who art thou? Back came the answer, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that man was transformed in an instant of time. The Christ of God had changed his life. Paul had already reminded the Corinthians of this in his former epistle where he states, I am the least of the apostles and I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me. And bestowed upon me not in vain. For I labored more than all the apostles. I had such a sense of debt because of the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. That I just had to fling myself into the work of God and make up for lost time. Paul was so sure of the indwelling and outworking power of Christ in his life. That he had a confidence. Writing to the Philippians, he speaks of the same thing. He says, having this confidence that he which has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Surely this is the strength of confidence we need in the ministry today. You people in business, Sunday school teachers, missionaries here, pastors, ministers, listening to my voice. This is the confidence we need today. Unfortunately, however, the reverse is usually the case. Ministers are leaving pulpits. Students are dropping out of college and seminary today. Why? Because of loss of confidence in the gospel. The gospel is backdated. The gospel is no longer relevant. The gospel is only about a God who's dead. That's what our men are being told today. But not the apostle. And not the man or woman who has found his confidence centered in the Christ of God. Alive, relevant, active in the world today. Do you have this sure confidence in the gospel, my friend? Do you have this sure confidence in the gospel? Would to God that people would return to the Christ of God, the only sure foundation of confidence for life and service. But this strength of confidence was not only centered in the Christ of God, but notice secondly, in the call of God. In the call of God. Verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has also called us or made us able or sufficient, adequate ministers of the New Testament. Earlier in this epistle, you remember, 
Paul asks this question in chapter 2, verse 16. We dealt with it the other week. Who is sufficient? Who is sufficient for these things? The context, you remember, has to do with the solemn responsibility of the Christian minister. He goes on to show that wherever the Christian minister goes, he's either a savor of life unto life to those that are saved or a savor of death unto death to those that are lost. And the sheer sense of this solemn calling makes Paul cry out, who is sufficient for these things? Who could ever rise to the demands of such a call to the ministry? Here he answers it. Here he answers it. In these verses he says, our sufficiency is of God who also hath made us competent, the Greek has it, adequate ministers of the new covenant. Now herein is a principle which punctuates the whole of biblical revelation. And though it's become a trite saying, I want to say it with a new sense of emphasis and anointing this morning. Here it is. Catch it. Write it down. Make it the principle of your life. Here it is. God's commands are always his enablings. God's commands are always his enablings. God never calls a man. God never calls a woman without giving adequate, competent, sufficient help to fulfill that call, to keep that command. So Paul has confidence in the Christ of God, in the call of God, because in the very call of God he finds inherent those resources, that sufficiency to cope with what God had called him to do. So Paul tells us in these verses that the strength of his confidence is not only centered in the Christ of God, but in the call of God. If God has truly called a man or a woman to the ministry, and I care not what that ministry is, it may be just that very valuable, unseen, but basic ministry, uh, bringing up your children behind the doors of your home, but in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, his command are his enabling. Paul could, Paul could count unhesitatingly on the sufficiency of God. And this transformed his life. This transformed his life. Remember, our theme is the glory of the gospel, the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that transformed his life was the strength of confidence he found in the gospel, centered in the Christ of God, centered in the call of God. The Christ of God, the call of God, had changed his confidence from a purely fleshly carnal one to one centered in a God who's sufficient to meet every need. But now move with me to the second point. With the strength of confidence in the gospel, Paul had received something else inherent in the Christian ministry. And here I want you to follow me very closely. Look at verses 6 through 18, but follow step by step with me. I'm calling it the sense of permanence in the gospel. The sense of permanence in the gospel. Read with me verses 11 and 12. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then we have such confidence, we use great plainness of speech. I can't imagine a greater verse for this hour of devaluation and shifting standards and shifting sand upon which so many people try to found their lives. The sense of permanence in the gospel. This entire section from verse 6 through 18 is the most fascinating treatment of the permanence that inherently belongs to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
with characteristic logic, Paul argues from the old to the new, from law to grace, from that which is glorious to the glory which excelleth, from that which is transient to that which is permanent. And I want you to follow me as I outline the three emphases he makes here. Here is the first one. Observe how the sentence of the law has given place to the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The sentence of the law has given place to the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6. For the letter killeth, that's the law, but the spirit giveth life. The function of the law was to pass sentence upon all who disobeyed it. So Paul tells us that even though the revelation of the law was glorious, when the law was given by the administration of angels, it was a glorious moment. Even though it was glorious, nevertheless, it was a ministration of death. A ministration of death. While the law was given by Moses, we know that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. The law certainly exposes sin and prescribes death, but is helpless to deliver. But because the Redeemer has come, there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So as glorious as was the ministration of the letter of the law, the ministration of righteousness is even more glorious. Or as Paul puts it in verses 9 through 10, if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory. In this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. What glory that excelleth? Why? The coming of the Lord Jesus to release his spirit in us, to lift that sentence of death and set us free from condemnation. So our first point is made, the sentence of the law has given place to the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Herein is the permanence of the gospel. The permanence of the gospel. Look at the second emphasis. Verses 13 to 14. The glory of the law has given place to the gospel of love in Christ Jesus. The glory of the law has given place to the gospel of love in Christ Jesus. And not as Moses who put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished, but their minds were blinded or petrified. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away with in Christ? Paul reminds his readers that the giving of the law was accompanied by great glory. Indeed, such was the outshining of this divine glory that Moses captured it in his face. The splendor was revealed, the effulgence was revealed in the very face of Moses. But this glory was only transitory, for when Moses left the presence of God, the glory began to depart, the glory began to fade. So much so that Moses had to put a veil over his face, not to hide the glory, but to hide the fact that the glory was paling, disappearing, departing. But we're reminded that even though it was fading and departing, the very look of that glory on the face of Moses petrified the Israelites. The word blinded here is they were petrified, absolutely frightened. The glory of the law frightened them. But soon was to come the gospel of love, which wins them 
And so he goes right on to say, but thank God the glory of the law has now been given way to the gospel of love in Christ. And Paul tells us that the veil is done away in Christ, verse 14. It is true, of course, that even to this day when Moses is read, there is a veil upon the hearts of the Jews, and not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. But on the other hand, when the people turn to the Lord, look at verse 16, the veil is taken away, or to put it in William's translation, which is perfect, I think, he says, it is only through union with Christ that the veil is removed, and whenever anybody turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So we see that the glory of the law has given place to the gospel of love in Christ. And again, herein is the permanence of the gospel. The sentence of the law has given way to the liberty, yes, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And the glory of the law has given way to the gospel of love in Christ Jesus. The permanence of the gospel. For there was a gospel in the law. Don't forget it. There was a gospel in the law. The, Christ, the Christology of the Decalogue is one of the great themes of the Old Testament. But the law persists and stands with the gospel in its permanence, carrying a transcendence over it, so that the shadow of the law and the sentence of the law and the glory of the law are transcended by the gospel which comes beyond the law and brings us to Christ. And not only brings us to Christ, but unites us to Christ. Third emphasis. The bondage of the law has given place to the blessing of liberty in Christ. The bondage of the law has given place to the blessing of liberty in Christ. Verse 17, now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The context compels us to interpret this liberty as freedom from the bondage of the law, which freedom, of course, when analyzed, constitutes the whole freedom of the gospel, that which makes men and women free. What Paul calls in Romans chapter 8, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Here is freedom from slavish fear, freedom from guilt and the power of sin, freedom from the tyranny of the law, and positively, freedom of confidence, freedom of bold speech. Now, it's important to observe before leaving this verse that this freedom is only experienced where the Holy Spirit is acknowledged as Lord. Did you notice that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The sovereignty of Jesus Christ is identified with the reign of the Spirit in the believer's life. It's possible for the Holy Spirit to be present in your life without being president. It's possible for the Holy Spirit to be dormant in your life without being dominant. It's possible for the Holy Spirit to be a person in your life without being a power in your life. But where the Spirit is Lord, he is liberator. Let me ask you a question this morning before we go any further. Is he Lord in your life? Is the Spirit Lord in your life? I wish I could recall years in my life when I knew what it was to be regenerate, when I knew what it was to be born again, and if you had challenged me at the street corner as to whether I was a child of God, I would have said yes, instantly. But the Holy Spirit was locked up, as it were, in the attic room of this temple life of mine while I ran my life as I pleased. And it was only a crisis that brought me to the place where the Holy Spirit became not only indwelling person, but indwelling power. Not just dormant, but dominant. Where he became the law of the Spirit, and therefore the liberator. Where he reigns, he releases. Is he reigning in your life this morning? If he isn't, oh, that you might pray 
For this I pray, Lord, for this I plead. Thy Spirit's fullness flood my soul. Be thou enthroned, Lord, within my heart and all my yielded life control. He's talking about the gospel that's changed his life. He's talking about the transforming ministry. And he says the first evidence is this strength of confidence I have in the gospel, centered in the Christ of God, centered in the call of God. But he says something more has happened. I found a sense of permanence in the gospel, a permanence in the gospel, a permanence that goes beyond. Listen, the sentence of the law that goes beyond the glory of the law, that goes beyond the bondage of the law. Here is a gospel which transcends the law in all these three respects. Its sentence, its glory, its bondage. Why? Because the gospel goes on and on and on. It is the rock upon which the church is built. It's the rock upon which you are built. It's the rock upon which all the purposes of God are built. This glory of the gospel, finally revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. According to Paul, then, the gospel transcends the law in every respect, even though the law is not totally abrogated in the sense in which it hasn't its ethical demands upon our lives. But it transcends its sentence. It transcends its glory. It transcends its bondage. It transcends its curse. And to understand this reasoning of the great apostle here is to be filled with a sense of permanence that belongs to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think there's anything more needed in the world today than not only the sense of confidence in the gospel, but the sense of permanence in the gospel. That in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a rock upon which we can stand. And I care not what men say and how they corrupt the word of God, and how they dispute it, and how they tear down the great traditions of the Christian faith, how they water down our catechisms, however they may dispute the morals which are absolute. I want to say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, for in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ we have a permanence. But now Paul reaches his climax. And would to God we had three weeks on the next verse. Because it's one of the great passages of the word of God. Look at verse 18. Not only the strength of confidence in the gospel. Not only the sense of permanence in the gospel. But thirdly the source of radiance in the gospel. The source of radiance in the gospel. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Are changed into the same image from glory to glory. As by the spirit of the Lord. I repeat Paul now reaches his climax. Wonderful as it is to know the strength of confidence and the sense of permanence in the gospel, our ministry achieves very little in winning men and women until we've learned the source of the radiance. You can come with confidence, you can come with a sense of permanence and frighten people away. But when you learn that source of radiance and you're aglow with Jesus, aglow with Jesus, people just chase you to find out the secret of your life. And this is what Paul is speaking of here. This is what Paul is speaking of here. Paul introduces us to the source of radiance in a word, it's Christ. Or more accurately, the vision of Christ. The vision of Christ. And in these closing moments, I want you to follow me as I expound this vision of Christ. I sometimes wonder if the apostle had more than Moses in mind when he wrote these words. In one of his psalms, he says, David says, 
They looked on him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. I like the other rendering. They looked on him, and their faces were radiant. And I repeat, I think Paul has this in mind, reading not only Moses, but David. And I observe here from that we have, first of all, what we call the nature of this vision. The nature of this vision. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a mirror or glass, the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of this vision as the effulgence of God's glory. In his letter to the Colossians, the apostle describes it as the image of the invisible God. A careful reading of Exodus 33, and particularly verse 18, makes it evident that Paul was undoubtedly thinking of Moses when he wrote these words. You remember the patriarch cried in his prayer to God, Jehovah, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. And scholars tell us that in the Greek text of the Old Testament, this word beholding is wrapped up in that very request. Paul is using that very word. Show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. Moses knew very well that just one vision of God, one glimpse of God's glory would inspire him and strengthen him and give him the confidence and permanence to lead two million and a half people through that wilderness journey. He didn't look to his advisors. He didn't look to his great academic training in the schools of learning in Egypt. He didn't rest upon his military might, having won conquest after conquest for the pharaohs. He didn't even look back upon his experience of 40 years in the wilderness where he was tested and tried. All that didn't matter. He had two million people complaining and grumbling with all the problems of men and women and boys and girls. And he's to lead them through the wilderness. What's the secret of his confidence? What's the secret of his permanence of faith? What is it? One glimpse of God's glory. Show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. And this is what Paul is capturing here. And to me, and I say it from the depths of my soul, after 25 years of intense evangelism, crusading, convention work, pastoral work, I want to tell you from my own very, very simple experience, I want to tell you, there isn't anything that gives me spirit and inspiration and power and strength in the ministry than just one glimpse of God's glory, one beatific vision through the flaming page of Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just to look into the Savior's face as revealed in the Word, to capture what He is in all His fullness. It's worth everything else I've ever had in training or experience or counsel. We must see beyond our Bibles. We must see beyond our doctrine. We must see beyond our sermons. We must see beyond our churches. We must see beyond ourselves. We must see Jesus only. And if our Bible only brings us to doctrine, if our Bible only brings us to methods of study, if our Bible only brings us to our knowledge of the academic truths of the Bible, God forbid that's the letter that kills. But to be released by the Holy Spirit to see Jesus in the Word is to see His glory. And to see His glory is to glow, to glow, to glow. We all with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. That's the nature of the vision. But look at the rapture of this vision. We all with open face beholding 
as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Commentators are divided as to the meaning of this word beholding. Some read it as it stands, while others render it as reflecting as in a mirror. The revised version has it that way. Reflecting as in a mirror. The least we can say about it is that the word chosen by Paul is not a common one. It's a term which conveys the double thought of beholding with a view to reflecting. And I think in that we have both thoughts. Beholding with a view to reflecting. It's an exciting word, however, and conjures up the whole idea of the rapture of looking into the face of Jesus in order to be like him. Paul is not speaking here of a duty. He's describing a delight, a supreme delight, the rapture of the Christian, just as a lover who cannot wait to behold the face of her espoused and waits to see that face. So you and I as Christians should long, yes, with a great, ardent desire, just to get a glimpse of Jesus. And yet what is spoken of here is not a glimpse. It's not a glance. It's a steady gaze. Yes, the Christian with unveiled face should seek the face of prayer. Seek the face of Christ in prayer. Seek the face of Christ in Bible study. Seek the face of Christ in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In other words, in the atmosphere of prayer with the open page and the fullness of the Holy Ghost and more than the fullness, the anointing of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit, for it's the unction and anointing of the Holy Spirit which makes the book live and makes us understand things that people can't even describe to us. We see the face of Jesus. That's it. That's the rapture of it. That's the rapture of it. And I'm telling you, when you meet a young believer only just born again or a mature Christian who has learned the secret and the art of beholding the face of Jesus in the atmosphere of prayer, on the page of open scripture, in the power of the Holy Ghost, I'm telling you they're spoiled for everything else. When a man has seen Christ and seen his glory, and I don't mean just once, but that continual vision, that continual vision day by day in the life of communion and devotion, when a man sees Jesus in that way, I'm telling you nothing, nothing stops him in fulfilling the will of God. Nothing stops him. Nothing stops him. He's a glow. And people see it. And people see it. David said this. That's why we opened our service with this verse. One thing have I desired. David, you've been king. Yes. David, you've been shepherd. Yes. David, you've been fugitive and proved God in amazing ways. Yes. David, you faced the bear and the lion. Yes. David, with one shot, You penetrated the skull of a giant and conquered, conquered an army. Yes, but there's only one thing I desire. There's only one thing, only one thing I desire. What is it, David? That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. And beloved, I want to say here this morning, delightful as this exercise is, it demands discipline and devotion. Meeting with God day by day never comes fortuitously. The pathway of holiness must be pursued with all diligence. The devil knows that to look into the face of Jesus Christ means his defeat all through the day. So he's going to do everything to keep you from the place of prayer. He's going to do everything to keep you from the reading of the word. He's going to do everything to keep you from claiming the fullness of the spirit. He's going to do everything to keep you from claiming that anointing of the spirit by which you penetrate time and sense into the very presence of God and see the face of Jesus. He's going to do everything. And it demands discipline and devotion. 
to meet with God day by day in this fashion. That's the nature of the vision. That's the rapture of the vision. But now look at the culture of the vision. Look again at our text. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed, are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Changed, changed. That's our word, the culture of the vision. While we're engaged in this daily contemplation of Christ, a transformation takes place. We become conformed to the image of God's Son from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's a law of life that we become like the people we gaze at. Did you know that? Psychologically, that's true. You proved it, I proved it, science has proved it. We become like the people we gaze at. In the Christian experience, however, it is the Holy Spirit who effects this progressive change. The word in our text occurs three times only in this form in the whole of the New Testament. Three times, and it's worth just glancing at them as we conclude this morning. We're talking about the culture of this vision, the change, the transformation that this vision effects. First, there is the radiance of liberation. The radiance of liberation, and that's the text right here. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's a wonderful moment when we experience the liberating work of the Holy Spirit. This begins at conversion and continues throughout the Christian life. The more the Spirit reigns in our lives, the more he releases with the radiance of liberation, there is the radiance of dedication. We find that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. There's our word, changed, transfigured, by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Only a liberated life can be a dedicated life. So only when we know liberation can we truly know dedication. So often we try to reverse this order and bring ourselves into confusion and defeat. We must remember that Paul tells us to yield ourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, liberated. And again, as living sacrifices, liberated. God only accepts a liberated life in order that we might be dedicated. Thirdly, notice the radiance of consummation. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. You remember that this is the description of the Savior when he was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. That face of glory is a beautiful foretaste of what you and I are going to be like when we see him face to face. John tells us about that. Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We know that when he shall appear, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. We shall be like him. The glory of liberation, the glory of dedication, the glory of consummation. These are the stages of glory and radiance that we can know in Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking of that which changed his life, the sense of confidence in the gospel, the strength of permanence in the gospel, the source of radiance in the gospel. And there was such a glow about his life, such a glow about his life, that later he was chained to two soldiers in prison. Men right and left of him just got converted. Why? Because they saw something in his life which said far more than what they heard from her lips. 
from his lips. And people are looking for that glory in a dark and gloomy world. Do they see that glory in you and me? If not, oh my friend, this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray thee that thou will take the simplicity of this message this morning and cause it to be in the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming ministry that Paul discovered in his life. Oh, change us from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord, that we might be the outshining of Jesus Christ in a dark and gloomy world. We ask it for thy dear name's sake. Amen. Before we sing our closing hymn this morning, I want to add just one final word to what I've been sharing with you for reasons that will become apparent to anyone who knows that we're live on radio. I just had to cut short at that point, but I'm not going to disappoint you. There was just one other very brief thought I wanted to share with you. As we talk about this threefold radiance which should characterize every believer as he seeks to fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I'm reminded of story after story that can be read not only in the Old Testament and in the New, but in modern history of men and women whose lives were distinguished by this outshining of glory. In our men's Bible class last Sunday morning, we were discussing that tremendous text, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give a reason, an answer. What answer? Answer of the gospel. For the hope that is within you. Why? Because the text says they want to ask. Give a reason to everyone that asketh you concerning that hope which is within you. And I believe that the supreme secret of soul winning at the executive desk, in the college, in the home, in the circles in which you move, Society or otherwise is just this, that there is a glow, a hope, a confidence, a permanence, a radiance in your life that so shines out men and women want to ask why. That's the secret of soul winning. That's the secret of soul winning. Not catching people indiscriminately and pressing them for an answer, but people seeing that glow, seeing that outshining, seeing that radiance and wanting to know why. This supreme secret of soul winning, my friend, in one word, is Jesus Christ realized and reflected in our lives. Think for a moment of the faces of God's saints. What wonderful faces he's developed. A doubting college student who had heard and seen A.J. Gordon is said to have exclaimed, that man's face would convert me to a belief in Christ. Philip Brooks, once heralded as a man with the face of God. Peyton, Taylor, Drummond won the students a generation ago by their faces before they uttered a word. The face, after all, is a reflection as well as a revealer of the soul that is within. The gods we worship write their names on our faces. You can tell a man who's taken up with money and nothing but money. You can read the face of a person who's taken up with fame and nothing but fame. You can read the countenance of an individual who has no other interest but power in his life. Alas, alas. 
You can mark the visage of a sinner who lives in immorality. It's written all over his face. We carry the names of the gods we worship in our face. How lovely are the faces of the men who talk with God, lit with an inner sureness of the path their feet have trod. How gentle is the manner of a man who walks with him. No strength can overcome him. No cloud his courage dim. Keen are the hands and feet, ah, yes, of those who wait his will, and clear his crystal mirrors. Are the hearts his love can fill? Some lives are drear from doubt and fear, while others merely plod. But lovely faces mark the men who walk and talk with God. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.